So let's read together this morning, uh, Revelation chapter 3. Uh, we're going to start in verse 7. And if you don't have a copy, a uh, physical copy, you can uh, use our Church Center app. Uh, if you don't know what that is, just search for Church Center online uh, on any app store. Then it'll take you through the prompts and you can find Exchange. All the passages that we use there uh, here today are in that app. So it says this, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy and he who is true, who has the key of David and opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens. He says this, I know your deeds and behold, I've put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have little power and you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those who in the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews, but they are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word and my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, the hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly to hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's an interesting letter, no condemnation, just challenge. It's an interesting story uh, about a man named Charles Simeon who pastored the Trinity Church in Cambridge, England for 45 years. It was quite a feat if that feat had been done in comfort and ease, but it was not. And in that church and in that day especially, uh, the governing uh, authorities of the church would place a pastor in a church and say, this is the church that you are going to pastor for this time. And typically that worked out well, but in this case, in November 10th, 1782, the congregation made it known that they did not want him. So for five years, they refused to allow him to be the Sunday lecturer giving it instead to a, an assistant pastor that they had wanted the church hierarchy to appoint over them. When that man left in five years, the church gave the lecture to another man for seven years, that, and all the time refusing to allow Simeon to lecture on Sundays. Simeon responded by holding a Sunday evening service later than the Sunday uh, morning service uh, so that people from town actually became to, uh, began to come. The church wardens, actually deacons, uh, actually locked the doors, leaving uh, people crowding in the street. So Simeon had a locksmith open the doors, and when the wardens again locked the doors, he dropped uh, the evening service. Only after 12 years did the uh, church invite Simeon to be their pastor and to listen to him on Sundays. On Sunday mornings, the pew holders actually refused sometimes to come. At that moment, there were gates on the sides of the pews with locks, and they would lock the pews to refuse anyone to be able to sit down. So he began to preach again on Sundays, and the uh, sanctuary would just be standing room, only standing room around uh, the pews. 
He personally funded uh, seats in the aisles and nooks, but the church wardens again removed those, throwing them out of the building. There was a legal decision in 1792 to the effect that the pew holders could not any longer lock their pews and stay away indefinitely. So for 12 years of this 45-year position, he endured people literally saying, we don't want you. Every word that he spoke uh, was met with the criticism of literally the entire church that said, would you please move on? And what was it that sustained him? I wonder what could it be that a pastor could endure that Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, where his members, the flock that he's been challenged to care for, literally look him in the face every Sunday and say, we will not unlock the pew so that anyone can sit down so that you can speak to them. How did he endure it? I believe he spoke and journaled about this in a way that he said he had absolute confidence that this was the path that God had set him on. And because of that confidence that God had placed in him, because of the, the moment that he says, this, this is the place that God has placed me and has not released me, he has this tenacity to go after it Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, Monday after Monday after Monday, and he just continues to carve out the path that God has set for him. And I believe in a way, Jesus is pushing on the church of Philadelphia to do the same. Stay faithful. Hold to what you have. Be ready. Stay true. Each week we see the Lord introduces himself uh, as he prepares the letter. And this week is no exception. He again starts with the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Write this. And he gives himself uh, this threefold introduction. Uh, He who is holy, he who is true, and he who has the key of David. Who opens and no one will shut and shuts and no one opens, says this. The first two I think we're uh, very familiar with, these two uh, terms, holy and true. He's holy. No sin resides in him. No harmful thoughts exist in him. Think about this for a second. Ross led us this in prayer this morning. Let us understand and, and even feel the holiness of who you are. Think about this for a second. No selfish motives, no sinful thoughts, No desires that shouldn't be uh, placed elsewhere. Nothing, only holiness. He's perfectly righteous from completely set apart. It's just not that he's above us. He's entirely different than us. But he subjected himself to us, to the filth of humanity. And he came out perfectly clean. This is not the first year of Christ's uh, um, uh, human uh, mission This is not before the temptation where he steps on the scene and says, I am holy. He declares himself as holy. This is after he had completed his mission and and literally submersed himself in the sinfulness of man and came out spotless. This is how he declares himself to be. 
This is what Paul would say too in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to our confession. Why? Because we know that he's holy, because we know that he's true. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things just as we are, yet without sin. This is what the holiness of God means. It means that he passes through all of the muck and the mire of humanity and comes out spotless. Spotless. I love this self-description of him. It's different when he says it, right? It's different when he claims to be holy. Because it leaves absolutely no room for ambiguity or subjectivity. He either is or he is not. I think this claim, along with others that he made with his time on earth, gives the basis for C.S. Lewis's argument that he is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. When he declares himself to be holy, either he is holy and he can say nothing else about himself because that is true. Either he's a liar and attempting to lead us astray by claiming his holiness, or he's a lunatic that actually believes he is, but is not. I think by his absurd, astounding ability uh, to confound the greatest philosophers and scribes of the law proved that uh, he is not a lunatic, but he is who he says he is. He is the only one who is holy. He's the only one who's always perfectly true. He cannot lie. He cannot deceive. He cannot make a a promise that is not guaranteed and not kept. Think about that for a second. He cannot make a promise that is not guaranteed and not kept. It's impossible. It's not part of his character. There's nothing false or fake about him. He's true in every sense of who he is, what he says, and what he promises what he will do. And it seems that in most weeks, uh, Christ somehow refers back to the Old Testament in one section or another of his letter. Uh, In previous letters, he refers back to Balaam and Balak. He refers back to Jezebel. And here, uh, in the description of who he is, there's a reference of Isaiah chapter 22. It says this, then I will put the uh, key of the house of David on his shoulder. And when he opens, no one will shut. And when he shuts, no one will open. Almost verbatim, Christ is is referencing this uh, prophecy about him and who he is, what he does and what he's capable of. This tells us a couple of things. First, I think this is really important. Jesus considers the Old Testament to be very relevant 60 years after he rises from the dead and ascends to heaven. Think about this for a second. Jesus, 60 years after his resurrection and ascension, is still quoting the Old Testament. He sees it as very relevant, pointing back to key elements and moments, its stories, its prophets. And he's pushing the churches of the New Testament to learn from the stories of the Old Testament. There's a specific lesson in itself. Jesus is the gatekeeper. Think if Jesus considers the Old Testament to be relevant, so should we. 
The second thing is the key of the ancient world was very different than contemporary uh, parts of our lives. I mean, we carry around our keys in our pocket, right? And uh, the largest keys we have are, are mostly minuscule, but this was not the case uh, in this world. Uh, the, the ancient key was very large and awkward to carry. That explains why God promised not to simply hand Elikim uh, in Isaiah the key to the house of David, but to place it on his shoulder. It was literally something that he would carry a burden uh, of responsibility. He would have this and it would be forced to be a weight on him, not just that he would carry it, but it would be his responsibility. Second, unlike a modern key, which can be copied and given to several people, there was typically only one key for an ancient door, which meant the person who possessed it wielded this unique authority and power and responsibility for it. And so the authority of Christ enjoys uh, the one and only one who has the key of David. It's stressed by this following uh, exemplary phrase, he who opens it, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. In the original context of Isaiah, this refers to this absolute authority of Eliakim, the new master of the household uh, who would wield uh, this power, this control of access to the palace of the king. But in Revelation chapter 3, it now refers to this absolute authority of Jesus, who's true and trustworthy, and who possesses the only access to God and the kingdom of God. It's as if he's repeating himself when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I think in this moment, Christ declares himself as our ultimate authority and our only true north. Christ pushes himself on us as our only authority and our only true north. He's the gatekeeper. He's the one that holds the key. And when he opens it, no one can shut it. When he shuts it, no one can open it. Think about this for a second. No one passes by him without his permission. He pushes on us to, to say that I am the door that you must walk through and only door that you can walk through. He's our true north. What does this mean for us? What hope does this give us? This means for us that we're not chasing a moving target. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we don't have to look at the God of the Old Testament plus the God of the New Testament and try to find some happy medium in there to where we get to appease and do all these things and try to appease him in some way and gain his favor. He says, you have my favor only because I've given it to you, not because of your righteousness. When he's our true north, we have direction in our life. We have purpose and I think Revelation 3, verse 7, is heralding this trustworthiness of Jesus for us. So the question is, is do you trust him as your ultimate authority? And do you trust him as your true north? Maybe you've consciously decided not to trust Jesus. Maybe it's one of those things that you're wrestling with. And something that you're trying to suppress down. But let me ask you this, is what you trust holy, perfect? And the second question is, are you sure? Are you sure? 
Is what you trust true? The second question is, are you sure? Are you sure that what you trust in is true? Will what you trust in prevail? The second question is, are you sure? If you don't trust in Jesus, are you confident enough in what you do trust in to bank your soul on it? Whatever that is. Maybe today, if that moment is for you and and Jesus is this idea that you can't quite get to, I think everyone in this room has been there at some point. But we have to ask ourselves the question, then what are we trusting in? We're trusting in ourselves. Will you bet your life on your confidence that Jesus is not worthy of your trust? Think I'd challenge you today. Bring him all of your questions. Bring him all of your doubts. Bring him all of your objections to him. Bring to Jesus all of the things that you prefer about him or to him, your wealth, your job, your entertainment. Bring to Jesus all the things that tempt you to sin, your immorality, all of the things. Bring to Jesus everything that you can gather in your attempt to deny him as Lord. And do you know what you'll find? You'll find a God who's holy and gracious and merciful. And in everything you prefer him to, you'll find is filthy and defiled. You will find that he's true. And everything that you believe in instead of him will hollow out. You will find that what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one opens. You will find your true north. And I think this is the truth that he transitions to in verse 8. And he says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I've put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have little power and have followed my word and have not defiled my name. As in the other letters, there's always this debate uh, of what certain things mean and what certain things don't mean. A revelation is sometimes obscure and uh, it, it comes with metaphors and all of the things. And so uh, what is the open door here? I think here uh, we find this obscurity where we're not exactly sure. Of course, there's much debate on the open door and what that means. I think we could all include that it's some type of blessing or direction. Uh, There's something on the other side of this door that the enemy would like to keep hidden and would like to keep us from, but Christ opens it for us and shuts it for others. Being that people will attempt to shut it, we know that Christ is ushering us in and hoping that we come to him. There's many commentators that appeal uh, to other references to an open door in the New Testament. They all have a central theme. Every time scripture uses this in the New Testament, there's, there's a theme of evangelism, actually, of entering into the kingdom. I've just sampled a few. In Acts chapter 14, verse 27, uh, he says this, And when they had arrived and gathered at the church together, they began to report all of the things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 16, a wide open door for effective, pray for us for a wide open door for effective service has opened to me that there are many adversaries. 
2 Corinthians 2, verse 12. Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ and when a door was opened for me in the Lord. Colossians 4, verse 3, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open a door for us for the word so that we might proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I have been imprisoned. It's a central theme throughout the New Testament. When he talks about this open door, most often, if not every occurrence, it's talking about the ability to share the gospel and for people coming to Christ and repenting of their sins. It seems very likely to me that because of their faithfulness and their own faith, Christ is going to open up doors for them to bring others into the kingdom. Because of their faithfulness, Christ in little things, Christ is going to use them to shake the kingdom of God. He's going to give them supernatural ability to share their faith and to shake the community for the kingdom. They're going to see their neighbors and their family members turn from their sin and then find grace and mercy. They're going to see their children grow up in the Lord and not turn from it when they're old. They're going to see their friends who desperately pursue the desires of their flesh and are dead and their sins be brought back to life. They are going to experience the circles around them, watching people transform from slaves to heirs, from enemies to friends, from chained to free. And this is a blessing. This is the blessing of God. When we encounter the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God, this is a massive blessing that Christ would also then use us to help show others the open door. I think Christ is gifting the church in Philadelphia an effective and fruitful witness, and it's because they have been faithful He says, the work that you do for the kingdom, no one will be able to shut. No one will be able to step in the way of what you are doing because the spirit of God is with you. The thing I wanna push on us today, Exchange, as we learn to be a church like this, is that when we are faithfully obedient to Christ, he increases our effectiveness in the kingdom. When we're faithfully obedient to Christ, he increases our effectiveness in the kingdom. We know this. This is true about every relationship that we have, especially uh, fathers and sons or daughters. We give them more freedom with how they, uh, we have, they have used the freedom that's already been entrusted to them. We take off uh, maybe the governors of, of four-wheelers, Learned this lesson very, very early on. Uh, I think Levi was two and a half, maybe three, when I bought a couple of four-wheelers against Jana's uh, best discernment, you know? It was Christmas. I bought them used. I worked on them, you know? And so Christmas morning, I think he was, uh, I think Levi just turned three. And I, I, you know, I want them to go fast. I want them to have fun. So Christmas morning, you know, we go out in this dirt road and he guns it and, you know, turns it hard and it kind of fishtails. And I see like two wheels come off a little bit. You know, I'm like, hey, bud, listen, don't do that anymore. You know, he's like, okay. (laughs) And immediately does it and flips the four-wheeler multiple times. And of course, this is Christmas morning, right? Right. 
And you know the words that Jana says to me. You were right, Brian. Actually, the exact opposite of that. I was right, right? So we cranked that governor back down where it just puts along. It's like a little pedal bike for a long time, you know. As he gets used to it, we, we increase it, increase it, increase it, increase it, increase it. And then a lot of times, most often, just like that, uh, we become effective when Christ unlocks this freedom for us. When we're faithfully obedient to obey him and how he's asked us to engage our friends, our family, our coworkers, our loved ones. When we obey him, he unlocks it and says, I know that I can trust you with this. I know that I can trust you with the power of the kingdom, the spirit that's on you. I'm going to open up opportunities for you to share your faith with others. This is why he says over and over and over again uh, to be ready to give an answer. He says this in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ as the Lord as holy. Again, this is a reference even, uh, he's, it looks like Revelation chapter 3, Christ is Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a hope of, that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. There's this warning. There's this uh, trusting with the power. There's this interesting observation that Jesus makes about the church as well. He says that they have little power. Interpreters, again, differ on why this is the case. He could be speaking only in spiritual terms. Uh, maybe they have little power to move the hearts or the minds of others. That only comes from the Spirit, we know. So Jesus will open the door. While this is certainly true, there's most likely a, a physical element of this as well. Maybe even a political element. This probably refers to the, just the small position of the church in Philadelphia. Uh, probably small in number, insignificant in influence. They probably didn't have very many governing officials, very many people of prominence in their congregation. They're small in power. They might even be very small in number. And so what Christ is saying is despite your little strength, despite your weakness, despite your frailty, I'm going to open doors to the kingdom of God for you because it's not about you. The spirit of God is going to do the work and you're simply going to be able to benefit and see what God does in and through you. And this is what happens when we're faithfully obedient to Christ. What I think is interesting is that he says that no one can open the doors, not even the church of Philadelphia. No one can. No one can do what the Spirit of God does except the Spirit of God. And I think many times we get in trouble when we try to duplicate or replicate or manufacture the work of the Spirit. We can't. We do our part, and he does his. It seems that even though Jesus hasn't specifically mentioned persecution, there are some who oppose them, most likely uh, mock and ridicule them. In verse 9, we have this. He says, now, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews or not, but lie. I will make them come down and bow down at, before your feet and make them know that I have loved you. I love that last part. I love this last phrase. People will know that you have the favor of God resting on your life. I mean, what more could we ever hope for? Not despite them necessarily, 
But I, I want people to know. I want to be, that's what I want to be known for. My tombstone can be blank, but if everyone who's ever known me says, the Spirit of God rested on him. Man, that's what I crave. That's what I want. That's what I want to desire. Not just because they say that, because I want to live my life in such a way that it's undeniable. And he says, the spirit of God is going to rest on them and those who opposed you will bow down before you because they know that God has loved you. He's going to turn things upside down. Those in power will one day be humbled. Those who sit on the thrones of their own building will bow at the throne of God. And then on that day, those who trust in God will be vindicated, he says. And it seems as if Christ is promising the church what David prayed for in Psalm chapter 25. He says this, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul, my God, and in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. and Do not let my enemies rejoice over me. Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. Another version says it this way, none who wait on you will be disappointed. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. He's saying those who say and lie, say all of these things and lie, they will bow at your feet. Make me know your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. It's as if the psalmist is praying this hundreds of years before what Christ is commending the church of Philadelphia to and challenging them again. Trust in God, the only holy one, the only true one, our true north, our only authority. Trust in him, follow him. And all those who oppose me will be humbled. We will not be disappointed, he says. Notice verse 10. Because you've kept my, the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. The hour which is about to come to the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I'll say that this passage has been equally debated as well. Some interpret these seven letters to be seven different zones of time uh, in the world. Uh, some interpret basically these seven letters to be uh, the fancy word for it is dispensations or uh, these places of time. It's as if the first letter is this one season of the church. The second letter is another season of the church. The third letter is another season of the church, that type of thing. And some interpret this passage uh, to be uh, basically the, the last letter of the church before the tribulation. We won't get into all of that today, but I, what I will say is that it's very clear that these letters were to these churches. I've, I believe real churches in Asia. And we talked about this the first Sunday we opened these passages that I don't believe, this is my personal opinion, that it, doesn't, uh, that it cannot mean in something entirely different for us than it did for them. I don't, that's not my position. I believe that these were seven real churches that needed these real instructions. And while I believe like prophecy of the Old Testament, there might be some fulfillment, some continued fulfillment in the New Testament or even later on, I do believe every word of these letters appealed uh, directly to and applied directly to the church of Philadelphia. 
So last week we had this lesson in hermeneutics, which means how to read and study our Bible. And when we get to less clear passages, we read them uh, in the context of Scripture with the light of more clear passages. So if we didn't do that, we'd be tempted to think through this passage, if we live our lives in a good way, we'll be spared from testing, difficulty, suffering, and persecution. And I don't know if you call that, but it says, because you've kept my word of perseverance, I'll also keep you from the hour of testing. So if we just read this passage, only this passage without the context of scripture in light of more clear passages of scripture, we would think, okay, 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 good. This is actually a good thing for those of us who are good moral people. If we do these things, if we live our lives in these ways, then actually our life will be easy, will be kept from suffering, persecution, hardship, or any difficulty. This is what he promises. I think we have to put this in the light of Scripture. Think about a couple of things. First, Jesus suffered greatly. Jesus suffered greatly. And he was perfect. The Father subjected his own Son to suffering, his perfectly righteous Son to suffering, then the basis of a comfortable, non-suffering life is not righteousness nor perfection. We know this to be true. All of disciples suffered brutally. If you go back to Exodus, God predicted to Abraham that his people, his chosen people, were going to suffer in Egypt for 400 years before he brought them out of Egypt. This is not after the case. This is hundreds of years before Moses. Abraham, your people are going to be as great as the stars in the sky. And after that, actually for that, during that season, they're going to suffer. And then I'm going to bring them out. This is God predicting, prophesying, and promising suffering to his chosen people. We know they weren't righteous, but what we do know is that God chose not to protect them from that season. So it's not that righteousness guards us. Not, it's not that righteousness specifically guards us from persecution and suffering. So there's something happening here in Philadelphia that we can build our theology around, but it's not the absence of suffering. I think rather it's that Christ gives us strength for what he's calling us to. Christ gives us the strength for what he is calling us to. I believe that as if you think through this, uh, the church in Philadelphia are little in power, it says. They're weak. They're frail. They might be small in number. They have very little uh, political power. They have very little influence. And yet, Christ says, what I open, no one will shut. What I shut, no one will open. I'm going to open this door for you. Most likely, in my belief, evangelism and this movement of the kingdom in their world, they're going to see this happening. Think about this for a second. If that church, who's very small, insignificant in power, very fragile at the moment, it like comes across this persecution, it might have the chance to snuff them out. 
So I believe what Jesus is saying here is I'm going to protect you from that because you are going to do a kingdom shaping uh, work uh, through the spirit of God. I'm not gonna allow the enemy to take you under right now because I have another plan for you and for this region of the world. I'm going to protect you from suffering in this moment because you've been faithful in the little things and I'm going to put you in, in, the, in the path of governors and authorities and rulers and principalities. Others are gonna to come to know Christ because of you and your faithfulness to the word. I believe that because of their faithfulness to the word and because they have been proven faithful, obedient, that Christ is going to use them in another way. Satan has a plan for their lives, but so does he. And he says this, and he promises in verse 11, I'm coming quickly. Hold firmly to what you have so that no one will take your crown. And he has a promise, and he says, uh, the one who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. I will write a name on him, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So interestingly, Philadelphia had a strong and repetitive reputation for massive earthquakes in the region. These massive earthquakes would often destroy homes, businesses, communities, people's lives. And, and oftentimes when it, was, when it was struck significantly, uh, a different Roman authority would come in and completely change everything about the community. And you think about this for a second. Many Roman emperors and governors had uh, very uh, real authority. It was almost as if they were a small dictatorship within their region. And as long as they kept their subjects under the control of Rome, they paid taxes, they could make almost any kind of laws that they wanted to. And so with these change of earthquakes and this change of authority and rule, often came this whole different way of life. I mean, it was, you can imagine for the Christian believer, it, he was like constantly changing his approach and shifting his way. Even family members gone. Even the name of the city was changed multiple times. And I believe that this is a reference to this. And he says this, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore. He's saying this, I offer you because I'm authoritative and a true north, I offer you stability in the family of God. When everything around you crumbles, when everything around you constantly changes, when everything around you is constantly uh, worrying you, making you anxious, I bring you peace. Jesus writes to this little church in the city of Philadelphia and tells them that nothing is going to shake them loose from him. Look at what he promises these Christ followers in a city that's always under the threat of these uh, earthquakes. He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will you have to leave. And Jesus says, stand firm. Depend on me. 
walk through the doors that I've opened for you. And when all is said and done, you'll be standing in a new city with a new name. And I love what he goes on to say here. He says, I'm going to write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. Can you imagine what it meant to be those people? Can you appreciate what it means to you when Jesus says, I'll write that name, my name on you. There might be some other names that people have ascribed to you over the years. Some unkind names. Some untrue accusations. And in the end, Christ says, I'll vindicate you with my name. I'll write my name on you. And it will stay there forever. And then he says this, he who has an ear, let him hear. Would you pray with me? Lord, like the church of Philadelphia, we were probably tempted often to to look at the direction of the world, the condition of our culture, and worry and fret, maybe tend to isolate ourselves. But in this letter, God, in Scripture, in our hearts, you've confirmed that that you're trustworthy and you're holy and you're righteous. That you long to lead us into green pastures. You long to open the doors of the kingdom to us, God. To use us, allow us to be effective for your kingdom and your mission. So Lord, I I pray for those in the room that might feel discouraged by the enemy today. It feels like the enemy's on their heels, has trapped them, entangled them, ensnared them. Lord, I pray that you would free them from that. I pray that we would let your words sink in, that what you open, no one can shut. As Ross prayed this morning, that we would feel deeply the grace of God. So Lord, let us remember that because you've opened the door of grace to us, no one can shut it. The enemy cannot block us from your grace. The enemy cannot intercept it. He can't steal it. He can't take away your mercy. And though he tries to accuse us, God, your voice is louder. And so, Lord, I pray for those in the room that feel ineffective in their own life, weak in their own faith. I pray that you would, he- that you would allow them to hear your call for the door that you open. Come to me, those who are weary, heavy laden, 
And I pray that they would find rest in you. Lord, I pray for for those of us in the room that long to be a kingdom shaker, used by you, Lord, to make a difference in eternity. Lord, help us be faithful with what you've given us. To not squander opportunities. To live daily begging you to give us another chance to share your grace and your mercy with others. God, I pray that this truth would awe us, that you would choose us to live a life used by you. That you would awaken our hearts again to the fact that the God of creation loves us and chooses us. Lord, we love you. To say that we're grateful for you is, it doesn't even come close. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us now. I pray that you would give us courage to obey, even now. And it's your name, Jesus, that we pray.